0: Let's pray together. Lord, that is our prayer as we just confess together that our eyes would be opened, that our faith would rise, that our spirits would be encouraged through your word. I pray that you would speak through the preaching of your word this morning as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out now to our children's church. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 2 as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. We find ourselves finishing up chapter 2 this morning. Our text begins in verse 18. What I'd like to do is recognize that this text is given in the context of. Of the cleansing of the temple that I preached on last week. And so let's begin back in verse 13. We'll read verses 13 through 17 to understand the context. And then we'll begin our passage reading verses 18 down through verse 25. So let's direct our attention to the Word of God this morning. John chapter 2, begin reading in verse 13. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. God cares about authentic worshipers and authentic worship. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had done this, that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The passage before us this morning, beginning in verse 18, is given in the surrounding context of both Jesus cleansing the temple and then transitions us into the account that many of us are familiar with in the story of Nicodemus. Coming to Jesus and asking the question, we know that you came from God, but how can all of this make sense? And so, in this transitional moment, we have the passage before us this morning. The cleansing of the temple was a massive event in the life of the Jews. All of Jerusalem had probably heard of this event. No doubt even the Roman guards trusted with keeping the peace in the second temple there in Herod's temple had a vested interest in knowing what was happening and why this was happening. And so Jesus' answer to them in regards to this serves as a fulfillment of why the temple exists for the people of God And what role it has for the people of God today. The purpose of the signs of both the wedding at Cana and the cleansing of the temple both serve the same purpose as a reminder that Jesus has come to cleanse from the the legalistic, pharisaical view of religion and to cleanse that into, as Jesus showed in Cana, the wine of truth, into the recognition that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. So both of these signs are given as a statement that Jesus has come to cleanse God's People. With that in mind, I'd like to show you two truths that are given in verses 18 through 22. If you uh, if you have a, par- uh, a Bible that's split off by paragraphs, you may see these two paragraphs given in thought units. The first one is in verses 18 to 22, and the second in ver- is in verses 23 to 25. So the first truth that I'd like to show you from this passage this morning is that Jesus is himself the fulfillment of the old Testament temple. That's what he is, he is calling God's people to recognize. Jesus himself serves as the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. Let's look at this, this first and see the Jews' challenge of Christ in verse 18. Verse 18 says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And we need to remember that when John uses this phrase, the Jews, he's referring specifically to the leadership of the Jews who stood in opposition to Jesus. So, this isn't like he gathered all the 10,000 Jews who were present at the cleansing of the temple and they all agreed to ask him this one question. The leadership of the Jews here who were overseeing what was happening at the temple, who stand against Christ, came to Jesus, those who had been, had been perpetuating this legalistic hold on the consciences of the Jews, and they pose a question to Jesus. It's a challenge. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, don't be confused to think that this was an actual legitimate request for information. This is a protest. This is a challenge to the authority of Jesus. It's a protest and a challenge to dare Jesus to try to give an explanation as to why in the world he would go into the temple and to chase everyone out and to overthrow the money changers, to overthrow the tables, sorry, to chase out the money changers and get rid of the hypocritical worship. And as we saw last week, the spiritual abuse of the leadership to take advantage of the vulnerable and to take advantage of those they were actually supposed to be helping. So this is a challenge to Jesus' authority. Chronologically, this is the first time that Jesus is challenged, but it's definitely not the last. In Mark chapter 11, Mark records, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? So over and over and over again, you see the leadership of the Jews who are standing against Christ, who are going to challenge his authority. They're going to push against him. By what authority are you doing this? How can you say this? You remember um, in the story of uh, of the the, um, the lame man who was let down, through the roof, and Jesus looks at him, and they really had less of an issue of him healing him as they did saying, your sins are forgiven you, and then they like blow a gasket, right? They're like, who, who are you? By what authority can you say these things? Because Jesus is coming, and in all of his actions and in, in his signs, he's asserting himself as having authority over the Jewish nation. So, what's happening here. There are some who would look at this and say, well, this is just the Pharisees doing their due diligence because in Deuteronomy 13 and 18... Um, there, there are tests that are, that are given to see whether or not someone is actually a prophet from God. So Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 is, is, uh, you know, is the law of God that's cautioning God's people to believe everyone who says that they're a prophet of God. And it says, listen, if someone says that they're a prophet of God, all you need to do is you need to wait and see what becomes of their prophecies. If what they say is true then continue to watch and see if what they continue to say is true. And if it is, then they're, they're a prophet of God. But if what they're saying doesn't come to pass, then they're obviously not telling the truth and they're not a prophet from God. And so some would look at this question in verse 18 and say, well, let's give the Pharisees a, you know, a... A reasonable doubt here. And let's just say they're testing Jesus to see whether or not he's a prophet. But I'd actually submit to you that if that was the case, they would say, okay, show us more, right? We're we're just going to watch and see if it's true. But that's not what they say. They push themselves against Jesus. It was not a legitimate asking for a biblical reason, this was a protest. Because their hearts were hardened by sin and they were beyond reasoning. As we look at at this interaction between Jesus and the Jews, I think it would be good for us to understand that in our own lives we need to recognize the difference when we're discussing spiritual matters between a legitimate question and a protest. You know, some people will quote-unquote ask questions of you about Christianity, but they aren't really asking anything. What they're really doing is they're leveraging a protest, usually regurgitating information that came from someone that they like, and they are just protesting against what you believe. And so the book of Proverbs would tell us, don't answer a fool according to his folly, right? And that in this... Jesus is not going to continue to give them signs to prove who he is who he says he is. The sign of the resurrection will stand on its own, as we'll see. And so we need to recognize the difference between a protest and a legitimate question seeking an answer. We need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, friends. But it does no good to get into arguments with unreasonable people. If they were looking with eyes of faith, they would have realized that the very act of Jesus cleansing the temple was in and of itself the sign they were looking for. But because they were consumed with falsehood, because their hearts were hardened by their sin, they were blind even to this, meaning that no matter what sign Jesus gives them, they would not have believed because their hearts were hardened. What kind of sign were they actually looking for in verse 18? What sign do you show us for doing these things? What, what, what kind of sign were they legitimately looking for here? Well, when we look through the rest of the Gospels and we see the pattern of them asking this, what they are looking for is a sign that would validate their own ministry and that would benefit them. It's kind of like when somebody asks your opinion on something and you give them your opinion and they really don't want your opinion. All they want is a validation of what they already thought. You ever ever interacted with somebody like that? Hey, what do you think about this? And it may behoove you to step back and say, well, how would you like me to answer would you like me to be honest, or do you want me to tell you what you want to hear? And and in these protests, the Pharisees were fine with Jesus as long as he fit their mold, as long as he was who they wanted him to be. And so they are continually looking for signs that are going to do nothing more than, than bolster up their own legalistic, pharisaical mindset of controlling the Jewish people. John chapter 6, we'll get to this later, but, but uh, John records the following. So then they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread, for he- uh, bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. You're going to give us bread that's never going to cause us to be hungry again? I mean, for you, that may sound like a death sentence because we have food all around us that actually tastes good, that we like to eat. And you're like, no, I don't want a meal to satisfy because I want a different meal that tastes good and I want to eat all these different types of meal. But for them, we're talking about a sustenance lifestyle, right? I mean, it it was like they, they were working for every crumb of bread and here Jesus says, listen, I'll give you bread and you'll never be hungry again. And they're like, I like that sign. Give me some of that, Jesus, give me what I want. And then he turns and he says, I am the bread of life. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Not that far, right? I like you, Jesus, as long as you do for me what I want. So they continually push at Jesus. And the signs that they're looking for are not legitimate evidences of that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy from the Old Testament. However, not all of those who asked for signs were hardened in their hearts. It's interesting. John chapter 4, we see the story of an official, a a Jewish official, I'm I'm sorry, a, uh, a Jewish official, a Roman official. John chapter 4 verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he would made the water wine and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill and when this man heard that Jesus had came from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death and Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, please come down before my child dies, an act of faith Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Listen to the next phrase. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. There's a difference between believing what you can see and believing what you can't. Believing the word that you hear versus believing the actions that you see. And that really is the pattern that we're going to see in this passage before us this morning. The Pharisees wanted to believe the sign, the official believed the word. So the problem isn't with the sign. The problem's with the heart and what it's seeking to believe. How did Jesus answer this protest? Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He's in uh, more than likely the, the courtyard of the Gentiles and the Herodian temple in, in Jerusalem. And the only sign that Jesus would offer is this. Tear down the temple, and in three days, I will build it back up. We see this more fully explained in what he's talking about in our scripture reading this morning. The sign of Jonah, that you tear down this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. If you break this down, I will raise it up. We won't reread our scripture reading for the morning, but it's Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. The sign of Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish as God's instrument of rescue. Remember that. Some of you may not remember our our series through Jonah. The fish was not a punishment for Jonah's disobedience. It was God's instrument of rescue and preservation for God's child. And so just as the Jonah in the belly of the fish, and the fish was the instrument of rescue, so the grave will be the instrument of rescue for God's people. That's what he's saying. And and, and the sign that you will see is the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The destruction of the temple is the destruction of the body of Christ. The human nature of Jesus dying on the cross. The rebuilding of the temple. The resurrection of that same body from the tomb. And there there are so many layers to this one statement. We're just going to briefly touch on two of them. Okay, The first layer to this statement is that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a non-negotiable doctrine for the Christian faith. This, it is not okay to say, uh, you know what, maybe this was just a spiritual resurrection. Maybe Jesus didn't need to bodily rise from the dead. When in fact, Jesus clearly spells out you will tear the temple down and I will build it again through my own power, raise the body that was destroyed to be incorruptible. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is a non-negotiable. Okay? And that's just one aspect of all the implications of this one statement from Jesus. Another aspect that we're going to spend a little bit more time on is that with this statement, Jesus does something incredible. So much so that later on, in, in the trial of Christ, people actually try to use this statement from Christ to convict him to put him to death. That's how earth-shattering this statement is. And they twist his words, which we'll talk about, but, but this statement you tear down the temple, and I will build it again in three days, is a statement from Christ that through the person of Jesus, the ministry of the Old Testament temple is fulfilled. There is no more need for an Old Testament temple. What, is, what do we mean by that? It means that every part of the Old Testament worship and sacrificial system is fulfilled in Jesus. That's why we don't sacrifice animals anymore. That's why we don't, when we read the Old Testament, it's not as though the Old Testament is negated and it doesn't matter anymore. It matters a huge deal because it points us to Jesus. And we see that the entire Old Testament worship law, given, to God's people, as the elementary principles, as Paul says in the book of Galatians, is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Just two ways we could actually go through the Old Testament law, which would be a fascinating study, and to just see the aspects of the worship and see the aspects of the law and how it points us to Christ. But I'll just point out two. One would be in the sacrificial system, and one would be in the actual, the the purpose, the overarching purpose of the temple. Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, is the final sacrificial lamb, right? Hebrews chapter 10. You have not, uh, you have not uh, been satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats, but a body you have prepared through Jesus. Jesus is the final sacrifice needed. Secondly, what was the purpose of the Old Testament temple? It was to fulfill the sacrificial law given by God, but it was also very, very, it, it, was, it was in a, a, very, a very important role in the life of God's people. The temple held the very presence of God. And inside the holy place was something called the Holy of Holies where over the Ark of the Covenant the very visible light and glory of God resided. And Jesus comes into the world as the fulfillment of that temple. The glory had left the temple long ago but was brought again in the person of Christ. That He was the visible representation, the visible manifestation of everything that it means to be God. That He is the light of the world. The very presence of God here on this earth. And so when we look at this phrase, Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Friends, there's so much packed in that one little phrase. And I think think the Pharisees, with their knowledge of the Old Testament, kind of understood what he was getting at, and that's why they were so furious. Because he was placing himself on the level with the temple. Let's look at their misunderstanding of the statement that he makes. The Jews totally misunderstood what he was saying. They tried to leverage his words against him. They twisted, listen carefully, they twisted the words of Christ to try to accomplish their own ends and anyone who does so is under the judgment of God. Matthew chapter 26 really gives us a clear picture of how they tried to do this. Listen to Matthew chapter 26 beginning in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. Going inside, he sat with the guards. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking, listen, false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Using the words of Jesus, twisting them for their own desires, their own means. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, listen to what they say Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Is that what Jesus said? No. What did Jesus say? You destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. But they twist the words of Jesus, in order to accomplish their own ends, in order to actually work against the plan of God. And all those who do so are under the judgment of God. And friend, be very careful. When you use the phrase, the Bible says, you need to be very, very careful. When you use the phrase, God wants or God says. I'm not not telling you not to use that phrase. I'm just telling you to please be very careful when you use that phrase. In fact, James goes as far as to say, not many should be teachers of the word. For this exact reason, that those who twist scripture to their own ends specifically, or we should say especially those... Who twist scripture to go against the plans of God, like is very common today, are under the judgment of God. And so when you use the phrase, the Bible says, you need to be, unless you're quoting scripture, please do that all the time. But if you go to explain that, please be very, very careful. A threat against the temple was a capital offense. So in their accusations, they misquoted Jesus and twisted his words. Let us never make that same mistake. Verse 20 is interesting. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? (coughs) But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The the second temple, which they were standing in, was not Solomon's temple. The second temple was being built by Herod, an incredible complex, beautiful with gold and giant buildings, and and it had been it had been through a building process of forty six years. It wasn't done yet. It had begun being built in in uh, in early BC. uh, Excuse me, being kind of renovated and being rebuilt. And it would finally, the finishing touches would be, would be uh, put on in 63 AD, only to be destroyed in 70. And so by the time that Jesus was standing in the temple, it had been under construction and reconstruction and renovation for 46 years. Kind of like some of your houses, right? How many of us have projects and renovations in our home? You say, how long have you been renovating your home? Well, it depends on how you want to answer that question because it could be a long time because it's never really done, right? The temple was in this, this constant state of being rebuilt and renovated. And they say it's been going on for 46 years and yet you'll do it in three days. The temple was the place where God's presence resided Jesus now was that. And so John clarifies for us, inserting himself into the the narrative position of the account to say Jesus was speaking of his body. And verse 22 is such a fascinating verse. Listen, look at verse 22. The apostle inserts himself. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, and that includes John, remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The apostle here inserts this narrative comment to remind all of us that the Holy Spirit was working through the scripture to remind them of everything that had happened in the life of Christ. This, this phrase is actually, a, verse 22 is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy of what will come in chapter 14. Okay, so let me say that again. In chapter, chapter 22, I mean, verse 22 of chapter 2 is kind of a narrative comment post the life of Christ where John says, hey, I don't want you to miss it. Everybody missed it, but the disciples, they got it, but they got it later. Because in John 14, remember what John 14 is all about. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14 is given in the context of Jesus saying, hey, I'm leaving, and the disciples freak out. And he says, don't worry, I'm leaving, but it's actually better for you because I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And listen to what he says in verses 25 and 26. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and listen carefully, he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And this is John kind of saying, hey, by the way, that happened. Because everything that God says is true. And, and the, the specific comments, the phrases, the account of what happened, the Holy Spirit brings back to the remembrance of the disciples. Notice at the end of verse 22 the contrast that John gives us that actually serves as a transition into our second truth. What, what did the Jews want? Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What did the disciples believe in, at the end of verse 22? They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus said. And so John here is introducing a theme that we're going to see throughout the entire gospel. Pastor Ben mentioned it in his introduction to our worship service and our, and our music portion of our worship service. In saying that John is introducing this theme that there's a contrast between people who believe what they see and people who believe what Jesus says. There's this contrast that's going on and it's a beautiful segue into the next next truth and that is conversion comes through genuine faith. The first truth in this passage is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. The second truth is that conversion only comes through genuine faith faith. And we're going to pick that apart a little bit. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. So, same time, different scene. Right? It's as if if you've ever, you know, I grew up on audiobooks or radio dramas, you know, and they always had that that chord that would play do 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 do, you know, go the next phrase and some of you kids are like, "What in the world is that? You should try it." They're fascinating. Um but uh, but this is same different scene, but same day. It is as if the chord is played and a, a few hours have passed, or maybe even a day has passed. but but same same context, we should say, maybe the same day, but definitely at the Passover, definitely at the temple, okay? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, verse twenty three, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so as we're reading through, if we're reading carefully, we say, wait a minute, Jews missed it when they wanted the signs. Disciples got it when they just trusted the word of Jesus. And and there should be a little bit of a red flag that goes off in your mind because these people believed not because of what Jesus said, But because of what they saw, it's a reference to Jesus' miracles, his signs, that that they believed in him, many believed in him based on his signs. And at first glance, this may seem like a really good thing. Jesus shows up, he does miracles, and people begin to follow him. It's kind of like if somebody, and this this happens often with young children, when they they say they may believe in God, as we'll see in just a minute, but they don't comprehend the gospel. And the way that they may ask whether or not someone is a Christian is they may say, does that person believe in God? And if that happens from your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren, I would encourage you to be very careful with that. Because there are a lot of people who believe in God who are not followers of Jesus. They're not genuinely converted. And so it would be wrong to say, oh yeah, that person believes in God, they're good to go. Or to give that kind of stamp of approval on someone's life. Because make no mistake, this is genuine faith. Faith doesn't save, Jesus saves, remember? This is genuine faith. But it's not saving faith. And this is a, I I told Pastor Ben this morning as we were praying for the service, verse 24 is a fascinating verse that I don't think I've even noticed in the Gospel of John before. I've probably read it a hundred times. But let's read this carefully. Let's read verse 23 and verse 24 together. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, Did not entrust himself to them. That is a fascinating phrase. And if you look at the way, I kind of did a kind of geeked out on this phrase a little bit, okay? So bear with me. But if if you look at what's happening here, in, in the way that John is structuring his sentence, here's what he's saying, and he uses the same word twice. He says, When when people saw the signs that Jesus was doing, They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. It's the same word. And you go, whoa, hang on a second. What's happening in this trade-off here? What's happening? There's faith professed, but then there's faith examined. And that will happen to every single one of us. You You may have a profession of faith, and then one day that faith will be examined by God. And their faith is professed but then their faith is examined by Jesus. Jesus on his part verse 24 did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. That is a a complicated verse so we're going to pull it apart. Okay, Let's stop at the, uh, at the first comma there in verse 24 to begin with. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. This means that even though they had faith, they missed Jesus. Because you can have faith in all sorts of things, right? Right? You can have faith, as we've said often, and and this is what the prologue is all about. We said it over and over and over and over again. It's not about believing in Jesus. It's about believing in the right Jesus. For Mormons have a Jesus that is false. And it is a false Jesus that doesn't exist. is not found in Scripture. They get him wrong. Therefore, if you believe in the Mormon Jesus, you believed in a Jesus, but you believed in the wrong Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a Jesus, but it's the wrong Jesus. And they twist Scripture to make it say something that it doesn't say. And so you can believe in the JW Jesus. But if you do that, you'll miss Heaven, you'll miss the right Jesus. Islam has a Jesus, but it's the wrong Jesus. And so, friends, when you say, I believe in Jesus, that's not enough. You have to ask the question what Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible? Because if you walk up to to a person who who is involved in Mormonism, who worships at the LDS church, just drove by one this week, yesterday, and you ask them, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, they will say, yes, but the Jesus that they believe in is a created Jesus that is less than God and half-brother to Satan. Is that your Jesus? No, it's not. So you have to get Jesus right. And could it be that you've missed the biblical Jesus, friend? Because they believed because of what they saw, just like the people who, who, who Jesus is doing all these signs and he's feeding them bread and feeding them fish and he's calming the storm and he's doing all these, he's healing the sick and he's making the blind see and people go, man, this guy's great. I love this guy. And then he speaks and people leave. Why? Because they say, I like the healing Jesus, not the preaching Jesus. And when you come to Christ by faith, you have to make sure you get Jesus right. I was explaining this to a dear dear lady, and she said, how in the world do I do that? Friend, you must read your Bible. And you must be in Scripture to say, Lord, when you show me who Jesus is through this Scripture, I will believe in that Jesus And as you continue to show me, I will continue to believe. So even though they had a faith, they had a false faith. Many times we have this idea of faith in that, you know, people who are unsaved just don't believe. And that may be true from some. First of all, everybody believes something, right? But, but there may be some who say, I don't believe in Jesus at all, but friends, the vast majority, I believe, of unsaved people. It's not that they don't believe. It's just that they believe the wrong thing. It's not faith that saves you. Jesus saves you, the biblical Jesus. God rescues you through the person and work of Jesus and forgives your sins. But if you miss Jesus, you miss it all. They had faith. What made their faith false? That's the question we need to ask. Here's the answer. What made their faith false is that their faith had the wrong object. And I know I've said this over and over again in our church. But friends, we need to continually be reminded of this. That the object of our faith must be the biblical Jesus. They had faith in what they saw because it benefited them. In, in, in the coming ministry of Jesus, as we would see, this is a continual theme. That crowds will flock to him. So much so that, that one day in the cove, what is now known as the cove of the sower, a natural amphitheater, that Jesus preaches to more than 10,000 people and he gives them the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4. That, that you may believe, but your life will reveal whether or not that faith is genuine. The difference between the belief of the disciples in verse 22 and the belief of these false believers in verse 23 is evident. Verse 22, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus spoke. Verse 23, many believed because they saw the signs that he was doing. Genuine Faith has Christ as his object and is based on the revealed word of God, not what you see or what you experience. Friend, if you count your conversion because you showed up at some place where people were super excited and you had some sort of emotional experience, and that is the depth of your faith you need to be worried about your salvation. I don't, I'm not saying that you, did, that you can't get saved at a place that's full, filled with people and excited and that when you are saved, that it isn't an emotional event, but if the depth of your salvation is I prayed a prayer at a place and it was awesome, you need to question your salvation. You need to examine to see if you be in the faith. You need, to, you need to see whether or not in your own heart, if you have laid down your heart and your life at the foot of the cross in humility and accepted God as your king. Genuine faith has Christ as its object and is based on the revealed Word of God. Without the Scripture, you cannot be saved. So now we need to ask the question, what does it actually mean to believe? Because we use this, we use this phrase all the time, don't we? Uh, Pastor Brett mentioned this, I think it was last Sunday or two Sundays ago, in a Sunday school. Um, we use the word believe for all sorts of things. Maybe uh, I, when I was in college, I was in a, a production of, of Peter Pan, right? And, uh, and, and, and at, at the end of our play, you know, what, what do you have to say in order to save poor Tink, right? I believe in fairies, Right. And you got to chant, come on, don't do it now, but, but we do it then, I believe, I believe. And as you know, as, depending on how you're doing it, you know, as you chant, I believe, I believe, suddenly the light gets brighter and then everybody cheers, yay, Tink exists. No, she doesn't, okay? But uh, you can believe she does all you want, but it doesn't make it true, right? And you can believe in fairies, but, but there's no such thing as fairies. You can believe in the tooth fairy, as we joke about in our house, uh, but, but it doesn't make it real, right? And, and, and you can believe, I know I'm going to maybe step on some toes and make people angry, but you can believe in Santa Claus. Uh, when, when my youngest daughter was three, she, she asked us, mom and dad, is, is Santa Claus real? And I thought, oh, this is the moment I'm waiting for as a parent. So I sit down and I say, honey, Santa Claus is not real. Mommy and Daddy buy the presents. We, you know, it's a game we play and it makes it exciting, but there's no fat man in a red suit who flies around the world and gives all the kids their presents. Think about it, it's kind of creepy anyway with flying reindeer coming into my home, giving me things I didn't ask for, but I just thought about weird. And, you know, and all this kind of stuff, there that Santa Claus is not real. It's Mommy and Daddy and we buy the presents, or usually the grandparents buy the majority of the presents and and we have we have Christmas and the little three year old she looks at me and she goes but how does he get down the chimney (laughs) and I said he's magic (laughs) that's how he does it he's magic and she's like oh okay and she runs away right? (laughs) parent fail you know The problem in our culture is, is we use the same word for believing in Santa Claus that we do believe in Jesus, and so we walk up to we, walk to, we walk up to somebody, and we're, we're out of a good heart and out of a good desire, we ask the worst question we could ask: Do you believe in Jesus? And for an unsaved culture, Jesus and you've heard the explanations. He's like the he's like a fairy. He's like Santa Claus. No, 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 I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in Santa Claus either. And so we need to ask the question, what do you mean by believe? What do we mean by faith? Biblical faith is the acceptance and the embracing of Jesus as who he claims to be, which results in a life that aligns with the truth that you believe. Not perfectly. I'm not saying once you're saved, you're perfect. But you can't be saved and not changed. Because if you believe something, you're going to live that way. A lot of you say you believe McDonald's is bad for you, but you don't believe it. You don't. Right? A lot of you say exercise is good for you, but you don't believe it. Because if if you really believed that, your life would change. Like, if you really thought... If you really thought that was true and you were convinced that was true, it would show in your life. And so, when we come to this concept of belief, I love the phrase the Puritans used to use. They would say, lay hold of Christ. And I've used that before. I love that. Lay hold of Christ. Have you you grasped Jesus? Have you laid hold of God? Do you possess Christ? That's what the word believe means. It doesn't, believe, it doesn't mean you believe he exists. It doesn't, believe, it doesn't mean that you believe he's a good person. It doesn't mean that you think there's some God in heaven who's got a giant scale, and if you do good, you're gonna go to heaven. If you do bad, you're gonna go to hell, and that's what makes me a Christian, friends. People go to hell every day believing that. It's that you submit to the God of the Bible and you lay your life down at the foot of the cross, and you say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior for all who call upon the name of the Master, the Lord, God, will be saved. And so you need to examine your heart, friends. Have you laid hold of Christ? Do you possess the Jesus of the Bible, who's not some heavenly, you know, vending machine that's gonna give you whatever you want and you're gonna follow him as long as it makes your life better. But do you possess Christ? How do you believe in Jesus? Is it a mystical fascination? Are you here just because your parents come? Are you a Christian just because your parents are Christians for all those years and now you're a Christian because that's just what you do and now your kids are Christians and it's just what you do? Do you sit in a pew every Sunday and wonder why you're here? Or have you bowed the knee to Christ? Have you... Laid your life, laid your life down. Have you come in humility and accepted Him as your King, to which His rule has no boundaries? Have you submitted yourself to the God of the Bible? Well, I I don't know. Do how do I know if it's the God of the Bible? Do I have to know everything about God? in order to believe him? No, you don't. This is the second week in a row that I've planned an illustration and Pastor Brent has partially ch- stolen it in Sunday school. That's why he's not teaching the next two weeks because we kicked him out. And we said, no. He started into this illustration. My wife leaned over to me and says, well, there goes your illustration. You know. But he didn't do it justice, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a better <laughs> one. Becky and I knew each other for about a year and a half before we got married. This Becky, he was also married to a Becky, is married to a Becky, but a different Becky. My Becky, my Becky and I knew each other for about a year and a half before we got married and man, we were in love. We were gross in love, if you know what I mean. I mean, I was whipped and I loved every minute of it, still am. And uh, and when we got engaged and then we planned the wedding, man, it just couldn't come fast enough and... And my mom said something, we first started dating, when I told her who I was interested in, she was actually cutting my hair at that time, because I was in college and was too poor to pay for haircuts. haircut, so I went home, and she's cutting my hair, and I said, hey mom, I met this girl, and I'm really interested in her, and she cut off the buzzer, and she came and sat in front of me, and she said, you're thinking about dating who? And I said, you know, Becky Farrell, she's just so pretty, and she's so godly, and she said, son, if she will date you, you better marry her as quickly as possible, before she wakes up. <laughs> so I took that on as a challenge, and I did that. So, so when we got married, did Becky really know what she was getting into? She had no clue, right? Did we really know each other after a year and a half? Yeah, we, we knew each other. And, and when we stood at that marriage altar and we took our vows, it was very emotional for both of us because we meant it. With all of our heart, we meant it. And so much so that, and I share this with Becky's permission, um, when we drove away from our, 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 you know, our, what do you call it after the wedding? Reception. Thank you. Um, when we drove away, I was going to say rehearsal, but it definitely wasn't a rehearsal. We drove away after our reception and, and she looked back and her dad was waving goodbye and her new husband was driving her away. She began to cry, you know? <laughs> Because it hit her in this moment, she's transferring everything she's ever known from a man that she's known for, you know, 22 plus years, 24 plus years, into some guy that she's only known for a year and a half. But as we have continued our marriage over these past 15 years, we've gotten to know each other so much more deeply. And that now when we either attend weddings together or if, if I'm performing a wedding and we hear those marriage vows, it means something different, doesn't it? As you age, doesn't in sickness and in health mean something different than it does when you're 25? When you're in your sunset years of life, doesn't the phrase, till death do us part, mean something very different? I mean, it means the same thing. But it means something totally different. Because as you spend time with that person, as your knowledge of them deepens, so your trust for them deepens. So your love for them deepens. And friend, it's the same way with Jesus. You don't have to know everything about Jesus to be saved. What you have to know is that you have a problem And your problem is your sin. You were born that way. But there is a creator God and he is your only solution. And he sent his son, the son of God, Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, who did everything right that you can't do and did nothing wrong. And he took the punishment for your sin on himself so that if you lay hold of him, if you grasp Him, if you come in faith, that you can be forgiven of your sins and you can have the righteousness of Christ. And it's not by works of righteousness, through the washing of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that He saved us through His grace. It's not by what we do, lest we boast, but through what Jesus has done. And when you come humbly before Christ, And you passively receive and ask for that salvation. God pays the price for your sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he gives you his righteousness. So that you can have your sin forgiven. And one day you can spend eternity with God in heaven. That's what you need to know. But if you lay your life down before the foot of the cross of the biblical Jesus, whenever you learn more about Jesus, you know what you're going to say? That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. That's the God that I worship. That's him. No, he's not here to make my life better on the earth. No, he's not here to give me my best life now, for that's a different Jesus. He's here to give me my best life in heaven No, he's not here to take away all my problems or just make this life bearable. He's here to forgive my sins. He's here to be my king and to be the most loving master I could ever serve. He's the creator of the universe, and I submit to him. And as you hear more about this Jesus, you say, that's my Jesus. And then when somebody presents a false picture of God, you go, whoa, 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 hey, man, that may be some weird version of Jesus that you've invented, but that's not my Jesus. Because, friends, we don't have faith in what we see. We have faith in what this says. I I love the phrase that a pastor in Washington, D.C., named Mark Dever, he says this often. He says, God's people are not a people of the eye, they are a people of the ear. That, that we may gather in some place that's not the best visually. But we gather to hear the word. And to hear and to sing together. For we are not the people of the eye, we are the people of the ear. And I love that. For we come by faith in the word of God. As we finish... The first question that we've asked is, what does it mean to believe? The second question that we need to ask is, what part do signs play in faith? For Jesus gives them a sign, and he will give more signs. And so we need to ask the question, what part, we could ask it this way, maybe in today's language, what part does evidence play? Evidence of Christianity Does this, do do sign acts continue as proof and what our faith is in? No. But they act as evidence for the faith that is revealed in scripture. What we mean by that is, you, you may have heard the term apologetics. That just means giving arguments for the evidence of Christianity. People will say Christianity can't be true because of. And you would say, no, actually, if you look at this, it's coherent with the teachings of Scripture because of. And that's evidence, okay? The role evidence plays, signs and Christ's miracles, the, word, the way that miracles worked in Christ's ministry is that they offered evidence that what he said was true. But those who followed for the miracles had false faith. Those who followed for the word had genuine faith. Your faith is not in the evidence that's provided that Scripture is true. However, the evidence reveals to us that we have a reasonable faith in the Word of God. Let's end by looking at the last part of verses 24 and 25. We'll, say, we'll look at this briefly. We've only, we've only got two minutes or so. We really have two options at the end of verse 24 and 25. Because Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We have two options here. One would be that Jesus knew everything about everybody so he could spot a false profession because he knew everyone's heart. He was God. He had had the mind of God with access voluntarily and that he could know all things I don't think that's what this verse means. It's a legitimate option, so if you'd like to choose that option, there, there are several people, uh, many good, good people who would agree with you. It's not an unbiblical option necessarily. The second option here I think is a better rendering of what is being taught here. That Jesus knew the propensities of mankind. He didn't need anyone to explain how people were because he himself was human in every way. I'm going to read you the New Living Translation, the NLT, which is a great, a great paraphrase translation. Here's how they take this verse. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. Verse 24. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Jesus, as a true man, knew humans, and he knew the human propensities of each person's heart. The historical teaching of the church would be that Jesus' deified mind was veiled by his human mind, thus... In Luke chapter 2, he could grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. He was a true man in every respect and was attempted in all points just like we are yet without sin. And so Jesus as a true man lived a life of obedience through perfect faith and fervent prayer. He was also truly God in every way. It's the hypostatic union. You can't separate them. He's one man with two natures. One person, two natures. And I believe verses 24 and 25 reveal to us the nature of Jesus as a true man. He knew the propensity that all humans have to believe what they see over what the Bible says. And so verses 24 and 25 reveal to us that Jesus knew that people, even though they were following him because of his miracles, they were just following him because of his miracles. Is it possible that he knew the thoughts of, of, of everyone and that he could read minds? Um, I know a lot of you probably have, have thought that in the past. I don't think that that's the, ac- it is something that, that some people believe. I don't think that's the accurate picture of the New Testament. And for some of you, that may be a new concept. But Jesus as truly man... In order to be tempted in all points like we are yet without sin, in order to grow in wisdom and stature in favor of God and favor of man, if you believe that Jesus knew all things omnisciently, there had to be a point in his life in which he didn't, and then he did. Otherwise, as a one-day-old infant, he would look and he could read his mother's thoughts and all these types of things. And so I think there are a lot of problems with that. And so I think the best explanation as we're going to see worked out in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is living as a true man, true God, fulfilling the law of God through true faith and fervent prayer, righteously, as truly God and truly man. And so maybe that will pique your interest and we'll see more of it in chapter three as, uh, as John continues to reveal the human nature. Let me say one more aspect on that. That shouldn't shake your faith. If you're like, okay, my head just exploded a little bit. That shouldn't shake your faith at all in that we have ample evidence in Scripture that Jesus is truly God and truly man uh, in every way. And I think in an effort to emphasize the deity of Christ, in an effort to make sure that everybody knows that Jesus is truly God, we've kind of forgotten that Jesus is also truly man in every respect. And so we need to embrace both and hold them together in the person and work of Christ. And we'll see it evidenced all through the Gospel of John. Never forget, as we close this passage, we are people of the ear, not people of the eye. We center around listening to and believing the Word of God. Your inclination as a human, as Jesus knew, would be for you to be led by both what you see and what you feel. But let us remember that the only inerrant source of truth is the word of God. May we be people who are led by the word of God so that when we can't see, so that when we don't feel, our faith is not shattered. When our life gets hard and uncomfortable, we are still led by the the in erring truth, the unerring truth of God, and will follow the revealed word of God and be committed to the scriptures, however that leads us. Heavenly Father, so thankful for the truth of scripture and what it means and how we are to align our hearts with it. I do pray that you would give us a, a, a hunger and thirst for the word, that we may believe the word of God in every respect, that there would be nothing that we would be scared of or nothing that we would shy away from, but that we would embrace it all as truth, revealed truth, that possesses the power to change the human life. May we embrace the biblical Jesus.